I'm John Gardiner, and you're listening to the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading. Model railroading is fun, you just have to know how to do it. This episode, I'll be giving an overview of the model railroading hobby. Before I get into anything, let's make a few distinctions at the beginning. Model railroading is different from other forms of train obsession. Model trains are toy-like model railroads that do not attempt realism, like Christmas tree or floor layouts on steroids. Model train collecting is largely collecting historic or unique model toy trains and refurbishing them, with a much heavier bent on the history of the hobby as opposed to a history of railroads. Model building is merely the act of creating dioramas in scale. However, in model railroading, we use model building elements to recreate real or fictional railroads in scale and, most importantly, operate the trains like the real thing. Model railroading is thus unique from other forms of modeling or train enthusiasm. It is also the most popular and the most labor-intensive form of the modeling hobbies. As such, in this podcast, we will primarily be covering model railroading. Now to go into a history of model railroading. I have assembled this history from Model Railroader Magazine's Best Collection article series published in 1964, celebrating their 30th anniversary, and from a variety of other independent sources. Toy trains have been around as early as the 1880s, but these were very small affairs, either trackless, with bent wheels to run in a circle, or a simple circle of track with nothing more. They were all operated by wind-up clockwork, or by a rudimentary live steam mechanism where you would heat water in a kettle, pour it down the spout, and the train would run for a few minutes until the water cooled and stopped giving off steam. However, in 1901, Joshua Lionel Cowan, a New York-based Navy-contracted electrician, created the first mainstream toy train by using his patented electric motors, effectively founding the hobby of model railroading. Every model railroader knows his name and efforts. Cowan founded Lionel Electric Toy Trains and created a small elevated train set as a moving window display for New York toy stores. This primarily held two purposes. First, as a way for the toy stores to have a moving element in their window displays to draw people's attention and get them into the store. And second, to show off his electric motors for their applications in various technical pursuits. Not long afterwards, however, it was comically reported that toy stores started to sell more window displays than toys, and Cohen decided to change his target market demographic. In 1906, his original lineup of a single box cab locomotive and two cars had been expanded to two steam locomotives, two trolley cars, and a small fleet of freight cars. Between 1910 and 1919, Lionel's sales increased tenfold, and all the other major toy train manufacturers were founded, including American Flyer, Ives, Merklin, and others. Thenceforth was the toy train created. 
But what about model railroading? Most regard year one of model railroading to be 1933 with the Century of Progress World's Fair in Chicago. Three American railroads had large, completely custom-made exhibits, each featuring one of the first three real model railroads, captivating audiences. Upon returning home, Americans who visited the fair decided to buy toy train sets from local toy stores. However, unlike previous generations, people started to put the train sets off the floor on dedicated tables and added structures and scenery. One year later, in 1934, Al C. Kalmbach founded Model Railroader magazine in Milwaukee, which is still around today, as a forum for these newfound model railroaders to discuss the hobby. In the first few decades, Model Railroader magazine served much the purpose of a modern internet forum, allowing people to debate topics and decide the direction the hobby should move in. Some of the most noteworthy discussions established the standard scales of model railroading, which we will cover in a future episode, and the design and construction practices for a turnout. In 1935, two years after the Century Progress Fair, enterprising Midwesterners founded the National Model Railroad Association, or the NMRA, in close association with Model Railroader magazine. Its primary purposes were threefold. First, to unite the hobby of model railroading under one organization and connect modelers, clubs, and shows together. Second, to conduct outreach programs and introduce new people to the hobby. And third, but most importantly, to publish standards for manufacture so that all model railroad products in the same scale could be interchanged with each other. This last one is the most important because, previously to the NMRA, you could only ever use products from whichever single manufacturer supplied you as a result of cross-manufacture incompatibility and therefore dramatically limiting product selection. For example, you only ever had an American Flyer layout or a Lionel layout because the products sold by each were not compatible. Thenceforth, the hobby of model railroading as we know it today was founded. For photographs of model trains through the ages and additional reading on the history of toy trains, I highly recommend that you go to www.tcawestern.org slash Lionel, L-I-O-N-E-L, dot H-T-M. Now, onto a discussion of model railroading and what makes it different from other hobbies. First off, model railroading is not only model building, as there are many other aspects to it. In addition to the structures and scenery of other related modeling hobbies, it also involves benchwork and woodworking, wiring and electronics, computer programming, historical research, and, most importantly, motion and animation. Ever since the beginning, and I seriously mean this, in 1936 the first article was published, modelers realized that, as elaborate as your layout might be, running trains in circles is a short-lived form of entertainment and ultimately dissatisfying. However, a well-modeled pike, slang for a model railroad, with yards, engine facilities, towns, and industries already had the solution built in. Which leads us to what sets model railroading apart from every other hobby. Operations. I would like to note here that I believe that it is important to mention operations and describe them now in the beginning in detail because it is often the one thing that most beginners miss about the hobby and because it requires specific and realistic track arrangements. Thus, I find it better to introduce it now before you do anything that cannot be changed later. The purpose of building a model railroad is to someday operate it. By operations, I mean you operate your model railroad as if it was a real one. While operations are different on every pike, and usually tweaked to fit the interests of the owner, they usually involve some of the following elements. Dropping off and picking up freight cars from industry spurs, pretending that they are loaded with cargo, and delivering them to a destination. 
Scheduled trains running from place to place to drop off and pick up freight cars, passengers, or, rarely, both. Yards for the sorting of cars between scheduled trains to get freight cars to their final destinations. Engine facilities to park, refuel, and maintain the locomotives, cabooses, and other non-revenue cars. Staging yards, which, much like the wings of a theatrical stage, are hidden tracks used to represent how the model trains travel beyond the basement to parts of the railroad that you have not modeled. Inviting friends over to play the parts of engineers, conductors, and other railroad personnel, allowing for you to run multiple trains at any given time. And prototypical paperwork, to help facilitate the moving of cars from place to place. For example, a waybill, which tells you each car's destination, or a timetable, which tells you where your train is allowed to go and when to avoid crashes. Some pikes, which try to recreate more realistic or complicated operation schemas, use a fast clock. For example, a clock that runs four times faster than reality, and a dispatcher, who coordinates train movements according to the schedule, or usurping the schedule and issuing new orders. Smaller model railroads generally don't need a dispatcher, and at least for now, this is beyond the scope of beginner modeling. I will address this topic in the future. Usually, every model railroad is set at a specific time and place, whether or not the railroad it models is real to facilitate realistic operations. Nearly all model railroaders eventually turn to operating their model railroad even if they didn't originally intend it. Operations can be anywhere from a very simple, laid-back, mother-may-I, to a strict timetable and train order operations, so given that spectrum, there's usually something for everybody. While all other aspects of the hobby are important and enjoyable, operations are usually considered to be the end goal. Now I'm going to give my famous model trains in a nutshell speech. It should be noticed that these various stages are artificially bisected, and in general, construction proceeds on all fronts more or less simultaneously, as the stage of construction allows it. First, you need to research and plan, both real railroads and model ones. For the real railroad, you need to decide on a prototype to model, or understand how the real railroads work in order to successfully create a freelanced railroad. Even if you don't want to model a specific prototype, an integral understanding of real railroads really can only help. Many people choose to proto-freelance, which is a cross between freelancing and prototype modeling. Proto-freelancing is where you take actual elements of real railroads or multiple railroads and use them to create a railroad that could have plausibly existed. This takes many forms, from simply copying a real railroad's yard track plan onto an otherwise freelance railroad, to building a pike that was based off a railroad that was planned but never built, to modeling an actual railroad and then pretending that it existed later in history than it actually did. As for researching models, it's a good idea to get some issues of magazines like Great Model Railroads, or to subscribe to a magazine like Model Railroader, Model Railroad Hobbyist, or Railroad Model Craftsman. You should also be engaging yourself in the local modeling community, visiting some local model railroads, joining some railroad clubs, finding your hobby shop, and going to a few train shows. This will show you all of what people are doing, and more importantly, it will allow you to identify what you like in a good model railroad, and more importantly, will allow you to identify what you think makes a good model railroad, and thusly how you can better tailor your own modeling efforts in order to suit your own interests. Finally, and very importantly, you should be researching your own layout space. If you are going to build anything other than an isolated island layout, you must make a detailed blueprint of the layout room and create a plan accurate to the quarter inch including the height of things off the floor. Next, you make a track plan. 
A track plan is essentially the blueprint of your track as it goes around the layout, and usually includes explanations of features, important structures or scenery elements, and a description of what each area is supposed to be. Designing the track plan is the most important step in building a successful model railroad. In short, it is like the disciples writing the New Testament, the prophets writing the Torah, Muhammad writing the Quran, or NASA scientists writing flight rules. While it can be changed later to better suit your interests and situation, it is the single document from which all future work on your model railroad flows. Get your track plan right, and you are almost assured to have a great model railroad. Next, you should have your plan reviewed by others. This is not generally considered to be an official step in building a model railroad, but it is always a good idea to get your plans reviewed by others before you start construction. Visit a train club or join an online forum, and then ask around for people who are willing to go over your track plan, ask questions, make suggestions, etc. As with researching real railroads, this really can only help, because sometimes we all take things for granted that we think are necessary, but that others might identify other solutions for. Then you build benchwork. Benchwork is the foundation of your model railroad. It is usually comprised of an interlocking grid network, supported by legs and involving shelves, wiring conduits, lighting valences, and other ephemera to support the operation of a model railroad. Next comes subroadbed. Integrally connected to benchwork, subroadbed is what you actually put the track on. Normally, it is no more than the track width to allow for reducing material costs and unrestricted scenery formations. However, on beginner pikes, it is usually just as simple as a flat sheet of plywood that covers the top of the benchwork. Both benchwork and subroadbed are planned down to the quarter inch using the track plan previously developed. This is one of the main reasons why track plans are so important. After that, you lay track. Laying track is usually done with two main components. The roadbed, which directly supports the track, and the track itself. The roadbed is usually simple strip cork, sometimes cut to size, and the track is usually a combination of switches, flex track, or, if you want, sectional track. Flex track, miracle that it is, is a flexible three-foot length of track that can be cut to size, allowing you to make whatever track arrangement you want. The track and roadbed are glued down, and then the track is covered with ballast to make it look realistic. The sectional track with plastic molded roadbed, most commonly found in train sets, also called click track, is almost never used on finished model railroads because it is so inflexible, though sectional track without the roadbed is sometimes used. Once your track is down, you must wire it up. Wiring involves laying two electrical buses underneath the subroadbed to eventually connect to and power the track. They feed back into a DCC system, which itself connects to the throttles, thusly allowing the trains to be controlled. Additional electrical features, such as power turnouts, layout animations, or lighting devices are also part of this stage. After this is all done, you can finally start building structures. Structures are assembled by the modeler in traditional modeling hobby fashion to make the layout look realistic. Structures usually fall into one of five categories. First, there are the overwhelmingly expensive pre-built structures that you can buy already assembled, but very few people do that nowadays. Then come simple unassembled kits, which are usually made from plastic or occasionally wood. Sometimes you don't even have to paint them, and it's what is colloquially called a shake-the-box kit, where you shake the box a little and the structure is assembled. After that comes kit-bashed structures, which are normal kits, however they have been modified by the modeler in some way to make the structure different from the kit's intended assembly. This could be anything from adding a simple awning or extra window to giving the building an entirely different footprint or combining multiple kits together. After this usually comes more elaborate craftsman kits, which can sometimes have parts made in exotic materials like wood, brass, hydrocal, resin, or other materials. 
Craftsman kits are often very difficult to assemble, sometimes they are literally nothing more than a box of scale dimensional lumber and a few plans, but they do often produce beautiful results. Then finally, departing from plans entirely are scratch-built structures, which are usually made from bulk raw materials by the individuals. As should be obvious, these five categories are arranged in order of increasing difficulty. Then comes scenery. Once the buildings are down, you can start scenicing your layout. Scenery is also closely related to the traditional modeling hobbies, and quite simply, all you need to do is create realistic landforms, make trees and rocks, apply ground cover, detail some scenes, and make it look like the world in general. It's generally considered to be the most artistic phase of the hobby. Then, finally, come operations. As previously mentioned, operating a model railroad is the act of moving freight and passengers across the railroad via yards, junctions, spurs, and the like in the same way that a real railroad would. Now that you have a general overview of what model railroading involves, I encourage you to go to a local model railroad club and get to know the hobby and its components in more detail. In future episodes, I will cover each of these topics in much greater detail. This is merely an overview. If you have a question or comment, please email me at bgtmrring at gmail.com and visit us at Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash bgtmrring. I look forward to speaking with you all. If you like the show, please give us a good review on iTunes and subscribe to our podcast feed. If you did not like the show, do not say anything and contemplate the thought crime that you have committed. And now, as your reward for listening through my ending spiel, your modeler's vocabulary word for this episode is dope monkey. Noun. Car inspector. Named for a sticky solution called dope, used to cool down hot journal boxes. Thank you for listening, and happy modeling. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, it's G4 from the editing room, and since there seems to be such a discrepancy between me actually recording these episodes and me actually getting them ready for publication, I think I'm going to give you guys these regular production updates at the end of each episode, of which this is one. So, uh, sorry for the long delay it took me in posting this episode. I was away at Columbia for graduate school interviews and panicking for that, but uh, this is something I did not get to mention in the last episode. I have a website! I finally decided to spring me $144 for a square space, and I think it looks beautiful. But more importantly, this is very useful because it means that the episodes will remain available indefinitely so that all beginners can come to the podcast from any stage and go and get the information that they need. So I would actually like you all to go and check it out uh, because if you're listening to this on iTunes, I don't have access to the analytics uh, for each episode. But if you go to the website, which is www.bgtmrring.org, then your presence there will be logged by Squarespace Analytics. And so I will actually get an accurate number of how many people are listening to this. And so if it turns out to be like hundreds, then I'll definitely put a lot more effort into this podcast than I did initially. So... It also looks really beautiful, and I'm rather quite proud of what I did with it. I should also make note to you all that since it is $164 yearly, I did also release a Patreon, um, but I will only charge you per episode, not per unit time. So uh, you will only be uh, donating for each episode that is actually produced. Um, so if you guys want to go on over there, there's a link for it on the website. You can help me recoup some of my own losses from producing this podcast. But um, otherwise, still just check it out. There 
are also links to our the Facebook page on the website, so you guys can go there. Um, there's also a contact page, so if you have any questions, please don't hesitate. I, I would love to hear from you all. Um, but anyway, uh, here's me finishing editing this episode, and hopefully I will be able to uh, put them together a lot more quickly in the future. Once more, that is bgtmrring.org. But for now, happy rails.